0: So this is Hebrews 2, uh, verses 1 to 4. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to do what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified testified to it by its signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Well, on uh, products today, there are so many silly warnings that whole websites are dedicated to them. Uh, On a bag of peanuts, warning, contains nuts. On a hairdryer, uh, do not use in shower. On another hairdryer, do not use while sleeping mind boggles. Uh, On a toner cartridge for a laser printer, do not eat toner. On a toilet brush, I like this one, on a toilet brush, do not use orally. On a TV remote control, not dishwasher safe. Obviously they've got kids. Uh, On a Japanese food processor, not to be used for the other use. The mind boggles. Uh, such silly warnings give warnings a bad name. They make us think that uh, warnings are just a joke, and they're not really to be taken seriously. But the warnings in the Bible are no joke. And what we have in our passage today is a warning from God, and we ignore it at our peril. So this is actually the first of five warning passages in the letter of Hebrews. I've actually listed them. On your sermon outline in the bulletin and the reason the writer puts pen to papyrus was to warn his readers that they were heading for spiritual disaster they were heading for spiritual disaster if they didn't take action and the warning is also for us today so the danger is drifting drifting away from the gospel if we don't pay closer attention to it that is what happens we drift And that was what was happening to these first-century Christians, and it can happen also to us. Now, the word translated drifting here is actually a boating term. It's like a boat tied up to a jetty which slips its moorings and drifts gradually away, or a boat which is drifting off course because of the currents. And the point about drifting is this, it is subtle. It is gradual. It goes unnoticed. On the 11th of August, 2014, every parent's nightmare became a reality for 34-year-old Rebecca Chambers. She was holidaying on the island of Jersey in the UK, and she left her four-year-old daughter playing in the shallows at the beach with her cousins while she went for a swim herself. When she came back, her daughter was nowhere to be seen. She frantically searched the beach, but to no avail. And then she spotted off in the distance a small dot way off the headland. It was impossible to tell if it was, if it was a piece of debris or actually a person. A nearby man on a jet ski offered to take her out to investigate. And on arrival, they discovered four-year-old Jemima asleep asleep on her boogie board, having drifted one kilometer out to sea. Maybe you think that is an unbelievable story. I can give you the reference on the website. It's an incredible paper. It actually happened. Little Jemima was completely unaware of the drama that had unfolded around her. She had drifted out. It had been subtle. It had been gradual, totally unnoticed, the danger of drifting. And that is what the writer of the Hebrews is trying to convey to his readers and to us today. The danger of drifting is a gradual thing. It's subtle. We may not realize it is happening. When we talk about uh, somebody falling away from, from Jesus, that conveys, of course, something quite dramatic and sudden. But this is saying, actually, it can happen very easily and subtly. This whole thing about drifting, it can be death by a thousand little cuts, small decisions in everyday life, which over time accumulate into real distance. So, what we're seeing is, it's a serious warning of a real danger. What do we see when we look in the letter to the Hebrews itself? What evidence do we see of drifting? We see it at various places. Uh, chapter 3, verse 13, talks about their hearts becoming hardened. That's the danger for them. Hardened hearts, resistant to God's Word. Uh, We also see in chapter 10, of course, that passage where it challenges them not to neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. They're in danger of drifting away from Christian fellowship. We also see in the letter elsewhere, they had stopped making a public stand for Christ. Now they were keeping their heads down And we see that they have become weary in their Christian walk. Friends, this is a real, present, and clear danger for us today also, if we trust in Christ. Is there some sin I've stopped fighting? Am I just now giving in to to gossip, to slander, to business, uh, to bitterness, to sexual impurity? Have I stopped regularly reading the Bible and praying? Am I keeping my head down in my circle of friends, going quiet to my faith? Is the priority of getting to church wherever possible starting to slip? Am I letting other commitments trump the priority of fellowship? Have I pulled back from serving because other things have taken priority in my life? You see, all these are symptoms of Spiritual drift. When we stand back, uh, and I've been thinking about this, I can see at least two underlying factors which may cause us to drift, and I can relate to both of these as I'm sure many of you can. Uh, Familiarity and busyness. Uh, Firstly, familiarity. Uh, If we've been a Christian for a number of years, is there not a danger that we become overly familiar with the truths of the gospel? We know them, but they no longer have that that wow factor for us. They no longer impact us the way they did when we first came to faith. Uh, On Tuesday night, I was at uh, Presbytery, and uh, one of the speakers there told us about an occasion when he was going through the gospel presentation, Two Ways to Live, with a woman from China. And uh, he got to Box 5, and he explained that all about the resurrection, and he was going on to Box 6, and she stopped him. She said, Did I just hear you correctly? Are you really serious? A person came back to life after death? And he said, yes. And for him, of course, the resurrection had become just a fact which he had now accepted. He had lost a sense of the wonder of it. But for this woman who had heard it for the very first time, she realized how utterly amazing and mind-blowing that was. Are we not in danger of losing some of the wow factor of the gospel? Uh, second, us, uh, second uh, busyness. Uh, we are so busy that, uh, with so many things that maybe sometimes they're in danger of throwing us off course. Maybe they draw us away from giving due attention to what is truly important in our lives. Uh, maybe for some of us, it is appropriate to reword that famous ditty. Don't just do something, stand there. There's a challenge. You see, in terms of familiarity and busyness, it's not necessarily that we can avoid them, but the issue is, can we manage them better so that they don't impact our spiritual walk? Now, uh, the seriousness of drifting becomes apparent when we trace its trajectory to its end points, to its goal, and that is God's eternal judgment. So, firstly, we've seen the danger of drifting. Now we see the warning of woe. You see, if drifting is not checked, then ultimately it means we're without hope and we're without excuse. Firstly, uh, we're without hope. It's helpful to remember that salvation is both present and future. When we put our trust in Christ, we are saved and we will be saved. So firstly, uh, there is a present reality to our salvation. The moment we put our faith in Christ, our status before God changes. uh, From sinner to saint, from enemy to child, from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. And we know that. But there is also a future aspect to our salvation. It could say some of our chips cannot be cashed in until the day the Lord Jesus returns and convenes his global court his cosmic court in which everybody who has ever lived must stand. You see Christians don't bypass the court of God's final judgments we still are called to attend. But as our name is read out we are able to successfully plead not guilty. Not guilty because, of course, our penalty has already been paid in full by the Lord Jesus through his death on the cross. There are no further charges against us. What an incredible relief it will be on that day for all who have put their faith in Christ. But what a tragic sense of grief and regret it will be for those on that day who have by that point drifted away from Christ such that they no longer have trust in Him. Chapter two, verse three says this. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Drifting from Christ is fatal. It's subtle, but to do so means we are left without hope. Don don't know if you've ever been to uh, Niagara Falls in Canada. Uh, in my early teen years, we had a holiday to visit my uncle in Toronto. And of course, as part of that trip, you've got to go to the Niagara Falls. And if you've been, you'll know there's that viewing point, I hope you can still get as close as we could, where you get to the very, very edge of the falls. And you see this incredible volume of water going over. And of course, you know, I was 13 at the time, and uh, a child's imagination can run riot and one of the things I pictured in my mind, because if you go upstream, one mile, it's just a, a peaceful, placid river flowing gently. And I had in my mind an image of being in a boat, doing some fishing, and then finally coming around this bend and seeing the spray ahead and hearing the roar getting ever louder and louder, and finally realizing it was too late. I could not turn back as the boat drifted closer and closer to the edge, and that sense of terror rose within me. And that, in a sense, is a great way of understanding the true terror we should feel if we're drifting away from Christ. Because to do so is fateful. An awful fate awaits us. And the writer of Hebrews wants this to really come home to his readers. He, what he does is he makes a comparison between the Old Testament era and the New Testament era. Because, if you like, it's his Niagara Falls illustration. What he says is this. Disobeying the Old Testament law was serious, but how much more serious is it therefore to disobey the New Testament gospel? Uh, Look at uh, this time, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 together. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and he's talking here about uh, the Old Testament law given to Moses on Mount Sinai. It was actually, we see from other texts in the Bible, the angels which gave and mediated through God God. The law of Moses, the Ten Commandments to him. So, for if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? The message, the law, the the law given to Moses, it was binding. That's a legal term. It means this. You break the law, you get punished. An infringement of God's law, we see in the Old Testament, was often fatal. Often what we may consider today quite minor offenses. What we see in the Old Testament is the true seriousness of sin and the consequences which follow. For example, Exodus 21 verse 17. Anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. You see, there was no messing around under the law given to Moses. You disobeyed, you got punished, even and often by death. And you see, therein is the warning. That's the, the Niagara illustration, because nothing has changed. The wages of sin is still death. God's righteous response to sin is still to punish. Every violation, and disobedience will receive its just punishment. It may not be instant death, but it will be eternal death at the final judgment." And what we're seeing is the writer's also making another point. He's saying, hey, the Old Testament law was delivered by the angels, but the New Testament gospel has been delivered by God's Son Himself. If we drift From him and his message, there is absolutely no hope. So you see, firstly he's saying, hey, there's no hope if we drift from Christ. Secondly, he's saying, there is no excuse. Now, uh, we don't know for sure who the writer was of Hebrews. We covered that in our first sermon. But so when you see the case he puts together, you think, did he have a legal background? Was he a barrister? Because the case he argues... It's one which I wouldn't want to try and argue against myself. What he says is this. uh, The gospel has been declared by Jesus. It's been attested by witnesses. And it's been confirmed by God. Uh, Let's look briefly at it. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 3b. He says this. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord... Of course, he's talking about Jesus, God's own son, who comes into the world and delivers us this good news of salvation. And so therefore, you see, we've got no excuse. How can we on that day go, hey, I didn't realize it was that important. Uh, Secondly, it's not only declared to us by Jesus, it's attested by witnesses. You see, uh, the writer to the Hebrews and many of his hearers, it's evident from the letter they didn't hear those words from Jesus' mouth first-hand. Just like for you and I today, we did not hear the words from Jesus' mouth first-hand. Uh, He says in chapter 2, verse 3, See, that uh, the salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. That is Jesus. So you see, what Jesus said and what he did was passed on by reliable eyewitnesses and ear witnesses. It was attested, that's a legal term. It's the sense of being confirmed and validated, established beyond doubt in a court of law. And there they were, these witnesses who were saying, we were there, we saw it, we heard it, it is true beyond a shadow of a doubt. And we know that was the case because many of those attesting witnesses died for that message with their own life. So it's declared by Jesus. attested by witnesses. Finally, it was confirmed by God Himself. Chapter two, verse four. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to His will. See what it's saying. God Himself bears testimony to the truth of it. He, he, if like. He confirms it beyond all shadow of doubt by signs and wonders and miracles done by Jesus, but also done by the apostles. And he also attests it by the gifts given of the Holy Spirit to his people. So there it is, the watertight case, one which we would not want to try and argue against on that final day. So you see how serious it is to drift from trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. It leaves us without hope, it leaves us without excuse. So, there's the warning. But then the question of course is, how do we heed the warning? What are we called to do? What is the antidote to drifting? In other words, how should this warning function? And what we're going to see is this. It should shock us. It should make our pupils dilate. It should make our adrenaline gland release adrenaline. Sensing the fear, sensing the spray of the, and the torrent of water going over the edge of the falls. It should shake us out of our complacency. Chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. You could literally translate it, we must pay the greatest attention. The purpose of the warning is to jolt us out of our complacency, to wake us up and to shake us up. Well, uh, you've probably heard it before. It's been said that the purpose of God's word is twofold, to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And maybe this warning is the second of those two. The purpose of God's word is to afflict the comfortable, to shake us out of our complacency. I'm sure we've all done it. Uh, how often have you sat on an aircraft as you're waiting to take off and they're going through uh, the pre-flight safety briefing? You're sitting there and there are many other wonderful things to do. You've got, if it's a long-haul flight, uh, the uh, list of movies to watch. Maybe you've be handed a paper if you're in uh, club class and you're perusing it. Uh, how often do you sit there and you don't really give that poor air steward your full and undivided attention as he's running through or she's running through the safety briefing. Uh, Such was the case for many of the 163 passengers on board the Boeing 767 Ethiopian Airlines flight from Addis Ababa to Nairobi on the 23rd of November 1996. For them... It was just another pre-flight safety briefing. For them, as far as they're concerned, it was just another routine flight. That is, until after takeoff, a hijacking was announced. Three hijackers had forced their way into the cockpit and now held the captain at knife point. And do you know where they wanted to go? They wanted to come to Australia. Of course they would. It's a beautiful land. I know that for myself. What they didn't realize is that a Boeing CM67 hasn't got the range to get from Africa to Australia without stopping. Uh, the captain did his best to convince them, but they would have nothing to do with it. And so, the captain had no choice. He had to keep flying the plane. At the, first, at the beginning, uh, he tracked up and down the African coastline, but they realized what he was doing and they forced him to fly east over the sea. So his next port of call was to try and get to some islands midway. But finally, the fuel gauges were on empty, and there was nothing he could do. And he had to ditch the aircraft on water. And he actually managed to do an incredibly good job of ditching the 767 on a water landing. It was actually, you've probably seen it on YouTube, Uh, it was incredibly captured on film by a tourist on the beach of an island near where the aircraft was ditching. Well, in spite of him landing the aircraft on water and uh, doing a very good job of that, tragically, many of the passengers lost their lives that day. And it was only discovered later why that was. And the reason was this. Many of the passengers had failed to heed the pre-flight safety briefing, which said, in the event of landing on water, only inflate your life jackets after you have left the aircraft. Many of them panicked, they had the life jackets on, they inflated them prior to departing the aircraft, the water came in, and many of them were trapped against the ceiling panels because they hadn't listened to the briefing. How tragic. Just imagine if, when they knew they were gonna ditch, there had been time to run through once again the pre-flight safety briefing. How much attention do you think they would then have paid to that briefing? They would have been riveted. They would have listened to it knowing that every word could be the difference between life and death for them. And such is the sense of what the writer is trying to get across to us now. He's trying to say, listen carefully to God's word. You must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not Drift away. Did you notice how he pitches that? If you're a a grammatical person, uh, to use the official term, he doesn't use the second person plural. He doesn't say you must pay more attention. He uses the first person plural. He says we must pay more careful attention. He includes himself. And therefore, I include myself as well as yourselves. And therefore, as we close, some questions to aid my and your self-reflection. Firstly, in regards to God's Word. Is there any danger that I am drifting from God's Word Uh, through familiarity Am I in danger of losing some of the wonder of it being God's living word to me? Do I still cherish and respect it as the precious word of the living God? Does it still encourage me? Does it still challenge me? Does it still change me? Has it still got traction in my life? Am I maintaining the priority of reading it with myself and, if we've got kids with them, each day? Am I still maintaining the priority of studying it with others in midweek groups together? And thinking through, how should this change me? Am I preparing my heart before coming to church by reading the sermon passage beforehand? When I'm preaching, I score right on that one. Secondly, uh, the area of sin in our life. Is there any danger that I am drifting such that I am becoming desensitized to sin in my life? Does my sin still grieve me as as it does the Holy Spirit? Am I still crying out to God afresh, please God, help me to kill off this sin in my life? Am I taking practical steps after careful reflection to try and counter sinful tendencies which keep repeating themselves? Thirdly, the area of Christian fellowship. Is there a danger that I am drifting from engaging in regular, true, and deep Christian fellowship? Do other commitments sometimes trump me meeting together with God's people on Sunday and midweek? Am I getting to church in good time, such that I'm in the headspace to meaningfully engage in the service? See, that's part of the idea behind this breakfast we do once a month at the moment, to try and prime the pump, to help us realize how good it is, firstly, to have time to talk to each other, but secondly, when the service starts, just to, have to be there and to be ready and to be in the right headspace. And if you've been involved in the breakfast, that last time and this, you'll have noticed, I'm sure, there's a difference in the tone and atmosphere of the service when it starts. Because more of us are here on time and we can all start together and we're in the right headspace. Is there any danger that busyness is eroding the priority of quality Christian fellowship? And finally, The area of the greatness of Christ. Is there any danger that I am drifting from a sense of wonder at the gospel? Is the gospel becoming so familiar to me that in my heart it's no longer touching me? It's no longer amazing me. Is the greatness of what Christ has done for me and who he is still really impacting my heart? Am I praying, please God, give me a fresh sense of amazement and wonder of what the Lord Jesus has done for me? Am I speaking to other people saying, how do you keep yourself fresh? When I'm finding I'm getting stale as a Christian, am I honest with my close friends saying, I am feeling stale? What do you do when you feel stale? What resources do you have which may encourage me as well? This was a real danger for those first-century Jewish Christians. They were losing a sense of the greatness of the gospel. They were slipping away, drifting away gradually from the wow of who Jesus was and from the priority of trusting him. It was a fatal danger for them. It's a fatal danger for me, and it's a fatal danger for each of us here today. May the Lord Jesus impress on us, what that means for each of us. For each of us, it will be something different. But may the Lord Jesus impress on our hearts what he would have us do in response to his word today. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for this warning. This passage, which in many ways is a hard passage to hear, challenging, confronting in many ways. But nevertheless passage which is for our good, which is for our blessing, warning us of that fateful but easy danger of drifting. Please we pray, may you use this passage in our hearts and lives, each of us in different ways, but to show us maybe where the areas of our lives where we're in danger of drifting away. And please also then, through your spirit and through other Christians who can support us and encourage us, and through the work of your word, help us to move forward with renewed focus in the Christian lives and with a deeper sense of joy and a deeper sense of appreciation of the amazing gospel that we have in our hearts through trusting in Christ. We ask this name in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.